Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with today uh, Dr. Christopher Austin, who is Associate Professor at Dalhousie University. Uh, we're speaking about his groundbreaking book, Pradumna, about uh, an ancient Indian character of the same name, the son of Krishna, Pradumna. Hi, Chris. Nice to have you on the program. Hi, Raj. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Now, in the interest of full disclosure for the audience, we have had exchanges before. <laughs> this isn't a cold call. So we've, we've, uh, we've met at conferences. We ended up uh, contributing to the proceedings, I think, of the World Sanskrit Conference at UBCS. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. So unlike most of my guests that are just terrified speaking to me, apparently, <laughs> Chris is doing just fine. <laughs> so this, this book on a uh, fairly obscure, I'd say, relatively mm-hmm. obscure, but seemingly quite important, thanks to the book character uh, in the Hindu pantheon. Uh, how on earth did you, did you, how on earth did you end up writing a book on Pradumna? I mean, you, you do talk about it in your introduction. Mm-hmm. Listening, how did this start up? Yes, no, that's, you're quite right uh, to, to start with that point. Pradumna is by no means a, um, a, you know, a, a popular or widely uh, recognized figure in Hindu mythology. He is a little bit obscure, um, but he is in fact the son of Krishna. And of course, Krishna is uh, pretty much at the top of the list, I think, in terms of popularity and pervasiveness um, in Hindu mythology. So how did I start? Um, it began with a, a, a SHRC, or Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, uh, insight grant that initially was meant to, or had in, uh, you know, had in mind, examining a wide network of Krishna's family in terms of its mythology, and uh, especially examining the relationship between genealogy and mythology. So I had this project in mind to to study a whole range of all, you know, all of his Sankarshana, his son, his grandson, his wives, his. Um, and I began that project some years ago, and it was interesting. I wrote a few pieces on on Krishna's wives, Satyabhama and Rukmini. But really, I discovered that many of the characters that I thought might prove to be to make interesting studies really weren't very developed. And then I realized increasingly that Pradyumna had a fascinating sort of story cycle associated with him. And what was especially exciting to me was when I realized how little work had been done uh, on Pradyumna. And being a rather lazy person, um, <laughs> I tend to gravitate to the, uh, the, those subjects that have smaller secondary literature surrounding them. And so I increasingly, I, I, I focused my attention on Pradyumna. And uh, that's really how, they, how I, I, I found my focus. If by lazy you mean efficient, then, then I went. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working on something that I don't know that's a thing. <laughs> but right. so not many people have written on it, so I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so you're looking at a character um, in, uh, in, in narrative sources. So your mm-hmm. primary um, data is text, yes? Yes, yeah. Initially, in the early chapter, um, there are some archaeological materials that I review, but for the most part, we're talking about Sanskrit texts. That's right. From roughly the period, very broadly, of 300 BCE to around 1300 CE, with a few outliers. But that's really, we're talking ancient and sort of medieval period Sanskrit literature. And so, in some ways, this can be comparable to one of my first loves was was English was literary studies actually mm. this can be comparable to doing a character study of uh, Hamlet or some famous character or minor character in a novel um, this is uh, complicated by enriched by the the fact that the same character can make appearances at various different junctures in various different texts so can you say a little bit about you know you're studying Perdunia Oh, sorry, Pradyumna. <laughs> yes. Is it, are you studying his uh, story primarily in uh, one iteration, in one time? Or are you trying to arrive at a composite of mm. who he is? Or are you 
studying the ways in which each iteration modifies it. Yes, no, that's a good, uh, um, a, a good way to phrase it. I, I am, in fact, studying various iterations of initially of, an, of, of, of what I call a sort of a foundation myth. So there are really two stories about Pradyumna. One is the kind of foundation myth that is then taken up in, with variations in later sources. So I'm, I'm certainly paying close attention to how and why those variations are, are becoming uh, elaborated. Um, but the, a second narrative uh, emerges a bit later on, of which there are fewer variants. Um, and so I examine those as well. I guess I would say that I'm interested in both in tracing out a kind of an evolving mythology in different sources, and yet trying to identify, and I hope, I hope to, you know, I'd like to think that I was successful at, at identifying a persisting uh, trope or a persisting motif that carries through all of these various iterations, which include both Brahminical and Jain uh, handlings. And so um, that was that was a sort of a fascinating uh, thing to discover was that where I had imagined there would be quite a um, a departure from the the Brahminical or you know more Hinduistic um, uh, understandings of who Pradyumna is. When I looked at Jain sources, there are a lot of differences, but there is also a persisting kind of a motif. So really, yes, I was I was very much interested in tracing out the evolution, but also try to you know identify that red thread, if you will, that sort of runs through the entire uh, set of, of data. No, that makes um, that tension makes sense to me. Oh, I'm, I don't know if my very next, but um, uh, a project I've had in mind for a couple of years is a project called Mapping Markandeya. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, mapping, right. There is this tension of, well, am I looking to see who Markandeya is as evidenced by the, do the retellings create the character or does, or, 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 or does the character um, inspire the retellings? Right. It's both, right? It's, it's yeah. that with each with each uh, example with each occurrence of a story of Pradumna, probably from a very different historical horizon from another one you're going to have something you know very unique to, to the, the sociocultural function at that time mm-hmm. and at the same time you know artists aren't completely daft you know they have a sense of a character <laughs> they have a sense of there, there's some there's a there's a there's a sort of a intangible nature, essence, energy, signature, psychology mm, right. uh, of a character. And that's what you have to work with. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, something that's really fascinating me about Markandeya, mostly because of, 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 of the myths that are put on his mouth in the Markandeya Purana. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning more and more that, um, although the myths literally were just put into his mouth, they were done based on what, uh, this is what I'm supposing, what the redactors knew of his existing biography in the Mahabharata. Right. Although they don't make that explicit, they know who Markandeya is. Mm-hmm. So they're choosing w- what he should vocalize. And so anyhow, sorry about the tangent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my point is I can, I can really resonate with, with, with this book being about the character Prajumna across various stories, mm-hmm. also being about how that character is used in different articulations. What, yeah. uh, tell us the, the main story. Tell us the, 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 the um, wh- where's the main, the primary narrative of Pradumna from and mm-hmm. give us broad strokes. Sure. No, the, 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 what I call the sort of foundation narratives occurs in the Harivamsha. That is a, which is a Sanskrit text attached to the Mahabharata. It's the, the appendix of the Mahabharata or the supplement. And it's, possibly from anywhere between the first to the third century CE. And that the Harivamsha tells the continuous life story of Krishna from, from birth to his uh, adult years. And in that context, you get the story of his marriage to Rukmini and their, the birth of their son, Pradyumna. And the basic narrative is fairly short, but Pradyumna is born and he's immediately abducted by a demon or an asura named uh, Shambhara. And Shambhara carries, without really, one doesn't have a clear sense with, the, with this earliest form of the narrative, why he's abducting the baby. But in any case, he abducts Pradyumna, flies away, and gives the baby 
Prajumna to his wife, Mayavati, whose name means significantly she who possesses Maya. And uh, Mayavati raises Prajumna as her own son. He grows up without any awareness of his true parentage. And when he achieves uh, adolescence, he's unbelievably handsome and attractive. And Mayavati, who again knows perfectly well that, that he is not her own biological son, she becomes enamored of him, makes a, uh, a pass, uh, so to speak. She's fairly aggressively uh, declares her, her, her passion for him. Um, he is initially revolted and, and very much taken aback, uh, but she, uh, she first of all uh, hands over to him her Maya in the course of this, you know, pr- a, a proposition, if you will. She she sort of gives over her Maya to to him uh, and empowers him, and then explains to him that he is in fact the the the, the child of Krishna and Rukmini. So that uh, that seems to to seal the deal for Pradyumna. He changes his. You know, he's no longer, uh, he no longer rejects her. He rather becomes enraged and summons his father, uh, Shambhara, who now who, whom he knows is not his true father, and kills him and takes Mayavati as his wife. So his, his mother has become his wife. He has now got this Maya magic power. And he, they fly back to Dvaraka. That's his, his true home city of the, the city of Krishna from which he was taken as a young boy. Now he's about 16 years old or so. And they fly back, they return into Dvaraka where they're, where, where Prajumna is recognized immediately uh, on account of his very, very close resemblance to his father Krishna. So Rukmini sees him and says, this must be my boy. You know, he was, he was kidnapped from me uh, the day he was born. And Krishna arrives, Krishna confirms, yes, uh, this is my son Prajumna. And then Krishna makes a very, very important final sort of uh, gloss or sort of explanation of, of the whole affair. And he says, Pradyumna is the rebirth of Kamadeva after he was, after he was burned up, um, which is just a short reference to a myth that would have been well known to the, to the poets, which is the myth, and I'm sure you're, Raj, you're familiar with it as well, the myth of Shiva's burning of Kamadeva. Um, so elsewhere in Hindu mythology, we have that scene of Kamadeva, the god of love, or sort of a, he's he's the essentially the Cupid figure of of Hindu mythology, uh, is set is given the task of awakening Shiva from his meditation in order to um, to get together with Parvati and for and and, and uh, form a union with her and bear a son. Shiva is irritated by Kamadeva's. Um, uh, arrows, and he destroys Kamadeva and burns him up. Right, that's the myth that Krishna is referring to. And now, uh, now that Prajumna has returned, Krishna says, "Well, he's actually the rebirth of Kamadeva, and Mayavati is not his mother. She is Rati, who is reborn. Rati being the original wife of Kamadeva. So the, this pair, as as scandalous as the relationship may appear on the surface, uh, Krishna." explains it and says, you know, here he is, this is Kamadeva, um, come back to, uh, to resume his, his existence in an embodied form. And Mayavati is his wife, Rati. That's essentially the, the, the foundation narrative of Pradyumna's abduction, abduction, maturation, and return to his, to his home in Dvaraka. So that, uh, that foundational story is, um, in the Haryavamsha as mm-hmm. just by chance, uh, I'll be having the pleasure of speaking with Simon Broadbeck. Oh, wonderful! Yes, on his, you know, um, it's 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 a very Krishnite uh, holiday season this year. Yes, wonderful! <laughs> I have his translation, his Krishna's lineage, in my hand, uh, right here at my desk. Nice. Um, so there are a lot of themes in that story that that um, clearly it's 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 hugely uh, engaging, if not scandalous, tale. <laughs> And uh, Maya, Maya, magic power, Maya, also delusion. Well, yes, that's 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 precisely the kind of thing that one pays attention to uh, as you look in later and later sources. Um, the meaning of Kama, the meaning of Maya, um, are you know is not static from cent- from one century to the next, right? And the Hari Vamsha has a certain deep devotional theological. Um, sort of profile, and that's very different from, let's say, the Bhagavata Purana, some centuries later, where 
Lila, Maya, uh, Kama, and so on, have really changed a great deal in terms of the, the role that they play in terms of Krishna uh, soteriology, Krishna devotion. Uh, so that is indeed the kind of thing that I, I try to pay attention to. Um, in the context of the Harivamsha, really my analysis of Maya, Mayavati um, is a very much a gendered one, and I, I rely upon and I'm grateful to the scholarship of people like Ardi Dan and um, Stephanie Jameson and Sally J. Sutherland Goldman um, for helping to um, unpack the larger sort of cultural and social premises that inform epic constructions of men and women. And I certainly bring that to bear on this character, Mayavati, who is, in, in one sense, is, a, is an agent and who sort of takes initiative and, you know, awakens Pradyumna to his true identity. But who is, she is also, I argue, uh, again, in a way that's informed by these other scholars that I've, I've worked uh, with um, in my readings. She is a deceiver, right? She deceives her husband. She is, quote unquote, fickle. Um, that is to say, she, she migrates her, her, um, her, her uh, loyalty from Shambhara to her son and now husband, Pradyumna. And so in a sense, Mayavati plays into or, or confirms a certain epic stereotype of women as deceptive, fickle, unstable, unreliable, and, and requiring of control, right? Men, men must control their women. Um, that is the the attitude that one encounters quite often. Again, uh, R.T. Don's book on uh, women in the Mahabharata is very, very good for, for diagnosing that. So certainly that sense of Maya uh, is to me very important in the Harivamsha account. Maya then becomes something very different in the Bhagavata Purana and many centuries later, uh, where it does have a more positive uh, function to it. I think you've probably... Um, encountered that and dealt with that a little bit in your work on the goddess as well. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's just one example of, the, of a feature, a, an element or a facet of the original story, which um, clearly doesn't remain stable over, the, over, over time and really becomes, it really gets taken up in, in a new way in later sources. Maya, so just to sort of finish that thought, Maya in the Bhagavata Purana, although while still carrying the sense of illusion, um, false representation of reality or veil or uh, this kind of thing, is, it, it's such a rich concept in the Bhagavata and it has many more positive overtones. Um, the main one being, I, I think, I'm not, you know, um, there are others who uh, I would defer to on the, on the issue of the Bhagavata because it's such a rich text, but um, Maya in its positive sense in the Bhagavata has this role of um, functioning as a kind of a necessary, um, perhaps a distortion of reality or a, or a manipulation of reality on the part of God, on the part of Krishna, without which human beings couldn't really access the, the divine, right? The divine in its, in its true identity is transcendent, is beyond human intellect, is, is uh, um, far beyond our grasp as mere humans to, to, uh, to approach and understand. Maya then becomes this sort of play of God, right? To, to take on forms that aren't really real, um, but which are seductive perhaps with that are beautiful that are draw drawing our attention and make make it possible for the human to to interact with the divine that's the kind of thing that's happening in the bhagavata i i, I believe and um again that's a very very different context um in which the story of pradyumna is told uh yet again and where mayavati and this idea of maya uh consequently has has a different coloring to it so tell us about the central takeaway argument or, you know, what is it that you've learned about Pradyumna that you're sharing in this book? Other than, of course, the, the enterprise of putting together these myths is, is mm. itself a book. Say, well, here, look at, look at, look at Pradyumna over the ages. But mm -hmm. what's the main takeaway in argument? I would say the, the, the core motif of his mythology that fascinates me and that I, uh, that I identify as, as, present in an important way in every Pradyumna myth 
is what I call a sort of a double posture of masculine triumphalism. That is to say, uh, Pradyumna has a sort of a double virya or virility. He never simply kills the bad guys. He, you know, he defeats demons. He, he reproduces the work of his father, the avatara. So he defeats adharma and restores dharma in, in a sense. But it's never simply violence against the demonic male. It's always coupled with or paired with a kind of a triumphalist uh, sexual uh, conquest. Uh, so he wins the woman and he destroys the, the male. Um, um, it really, it, in, a, in an interesting way, yeah, there's so much I can say, and I don't want to interrupt you, but for this mm. very small footnote mm-hmm. idea that it, it really, to me, um, it really mythologizes the double entendre with Shakti as consort and as power. Mm-hmm. Takes the power of through taking the Shakti of, or takes the, he takes the consort of through taking the power of, like you're not sure which is which. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, he, that it really dramatizes that, I think, in his story. That's right. Yes. You're not sure which is which. I think that's, that's a good, you know, that's a good way of putting it. Um, that is to say, he takes possession of these women. Um, they're always willing, of course. The idea is that he's incredibly handsome. He's the god of love. So he draws them. He, he magnetically attracts them. They come to him of, his, of their own will. Um, and that is, at the same time, a gesture of male versus male violence and and there's an emasculation dynamic so that the two things are so bound together this idea of sort of sexual conquest in scare quotes uh winning the feminine and destroying the enemy male um are two sides of the same coin they they, they're paired together in this sort of perfect you know basically a kind of a masculine um a fantasy of double double power sexual power and violent power and they're really inseparable. Um, and and the, the inseparability and the coincidence of those two gestures is to me what's the most, that, that's really the most significant aspect of, of Prajumna mythology. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much there. There's so much there. And I kind of parse that on my brain. <laughs> yeah. The question will be about the book or about... Uh... <laughs> Something in something greater in Hindu studies, but no. Let's let's stay with the book. I have to be focused here for this for this time. Um, okay, so that's absolutely fascinating. How do you see that? How do you see that core motif germinating over time? Um, well, it's you know, on the one hand, you could I could stress um, its persistence, and I could say that despite various you know all kinds of, of variations to the story, that motif persists. Um, but it's not quite as, you know, it's a little more dynamic than that. It, it persists through different iterations, uh, wherein one might think that it would get lost. So, for example, so the, the, the abduction story I, 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 I sort of summarized there a moment ago is the first Pradyumna story. The second Pradyumna story is the romance uh, with Prabhavati. So that's a completely separate story in which Pradyumna falls in love with and marries a demon princess named Prabhavati. And she's not his mother. She's not, there's nothing Oedipal. There's no sort of scandalous family uh, dynamics. Um, And so one, uh, uh, you know, you you would be, um, uh, how should I put this? The, the, the way in which the, the romance with Prabhavati is set up wouldn't seem to call for any kind of, or permit any kind of the, of, of the dynamics that you would see with the Mayavati and the Shambhara conflict. But what happens with the Prabhavati story is that he, Pradyumna is, is sort of commissioned to destroy her father, Vajranatha, and the gods, it's a typical sort of myth, Hindu myth that you, you encounter so often in the Puranas, There's a demon. The demon is out of control because of a boon. The gods can't act against the demon because of the terms of the boon. And so uh, they they conscript Pradyumna to destroy this demon Vajranaba. And their plan is, let's have Pradyumna meet and fall in love with and marry Vajranaba's daughter, Prabhavati. 
So you might ask, you know, why is that romance the, the means to the destruction of the, of the demon? Uh, what does it have to do with, with killing the bad guy? And again, the answer is, well, case, you know, this, this story has very much changed in, in uh, its, its, uh, its parameters. It's a, it's a quite a large uh, story. It's a, appended uh, to the Hari Vamsha as a sort of a late addition to the Hari Vamsha manuscripts. It's a very, very different narrative. It's, it's kind of sprawling. It's a mini epic in a way. Why would they, you know, in the context of composing such a new story, why would they import this romance into the scenario? And, and my analysis is, well, here it is again, even in very, very changed circumstances, once again, Pradyumna's sort of signature maneuver is this kind of double posturing of he wins the girl. She's a fairly young woman. She, he wins her love. He quite audaciously and cheekily, you know, um, marries her in a Gandharva marriage in her, in her bedchambers, like right under the nose of her father. It's again, a kind of a scandalous union. Um, and it precipitates the conflict with the demon. And so Prajuna, of course, uh, 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 does the work of the gods and kills the demon Vajranabha. Again, uh, what's so significant to me is, is the way in which the, um, this recipe persists, this recipe whereby Prajumna, the male hero, vanquishes his male enemies by emasculating them. And, and really, this again, the sense is that he has taken possession of a woman under the protect, ostensibly under the protection of the enemy uh, male. And, you know, uh, again, uh, um, I argue there's a kind of an emasculation gesture happening with this sort of discovery, the revelation that your, your daughter is now my wife. You didn't know this, but now you do. Um, and, you know, that's the revelation that, that um, is sort of publicized when the chakra cuts off Adranaba's head, right? This, this sort of two-in-one revelation of um, the migration of the female character into Pradyumna's power. And as he does the sort of second gesture of killing and decapitating the uh, Vajranabha. So again, it's, it's a very much changed uh, narrative circumstance, a very different uh, and much more elaborate story for Pradyumna, but with that same two-handed sort of double virya gesture persisting how do you see this trope this 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 um two-handed gesture that that this trope that pervades um Prajuna's mythology how do you see it related to the mythology of krishna like why is mm. it, why is it that it's krishna's son that uh, uh, to whom this 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 trope is described yes um no very very important question there, I would say there are different answers uh, according to which text you're looking at. There's an answer to that question in terms of the Harivamsha. I would say, why, why is it Krishna's son in the Harivamsha? Well, because the Harivamsha is concerned with Vamsha, with lineage, and with trumpeting and valorizing a certain kind of, a certain set of male uh, uh, virtues, virility, um, power, uh, power over enemy males, of course, um, and um, the power to resist forces that are attempting to erode the vamsha. So, in the Hari Vamsha context, I argue the the you know the kidnapping of baby Pradyumna is a, is, a, is a, an attack on the vamsha of Krishna. So, in the Hari Vamsha context, um, what's being celebrated is the the um, the vigor and the, uh, the, the sort of um, the persisting power of Krishna's masculine uh, patriline. But then when you moved on to the, say, the, again, the Bhagavata Purana is a very sort of uh, uh, changed environment. And there, the idea is, um, it's significant that this is Krishna's son because uh, there's a new emphasis by the time one arrives at the Bhagavata Purana, the idea that Krishna is a beautiful God who has power to, to draw you know, the gopis and to draw his devotees towards him as a beautiful object of, of, of sensuous and sensual uh, desire. 
that is that is not part of Krishna mythology in the Hadivamsha, but it is part of Krishna mythology in the Bhagavata Purana. And so there, this idea that Krishna is the father of Kamadeva now means something very different than what it did in the Hadivamsha. Again, so there's you know, there's a certain rationale for uh, celebrating Pradyumna in the Harivamsha uh, vis-a-vis, you know, his status as the son of Krishna. In the Bhagavata, the devotional, aesthetic kind of uh, priorities of, of the poets has, has changed such that it's now, much, you know, far more meaningful than ever that Krishna um, brought into the world as a double of himself, Kamadeva, the god of love. Um, because Krishna is a kind of a Kama, Kamadeva figure in the in the Bhagavata Purana. So, uh, in in it, it, I, that's a very important question that you asked because um, Prajuma is always Krishna's son, and he's always understood to be the rebirth of Kamadeva. But those two facts don't really um, inform each other in a meaningful way in the Harivamsha in the same way in the same way that they do in the Bhagavata. So um, I wanted to ask about maybe, okay, I'll ask now. Uh, mm-hmm. Samba. Mm. We all looked at uh, the story of Samba as Krishna's son. Yes, Samba comes up more, I mean, in, in the materials that I've looked at in this book. Um, in the Jain sources, um, the, the Jains are, are uh, they love to uh, elaborate this whole, scenario of Rukmini and Satyabhama and Jambavati and this whole idea of the, the, the wives of Krishna sort of vying with each other for, for Krishna's uh, favor, and especially um, in terms of being the first to bear him a son. Now, the names get varied um, in Jain sources, um, but um, uh, uh, Samba does, yes, he does a, a, a appear. Um, and, um, I don't know if I'll, you know, it would involve me in quite a long, uh, narrative, uh, discourse, I think, to, to try to explain how that exactly happens in the, in the, in the Jain context. Suffice it to say that the Jain stories of Pradyumna, um, understand him as one of a few sons of Krishna, um, and that his birth is very significantly coordinated with, with, uh, with those of some of Krishna's other sons in a way that's not really emphasized in the Brahminical myths. Um, but um, I'm curious what your um, interest in Samba is. is it, does it have to do with the Surya connection or is it... Uh, well, yes. I mean, in a word, yes. It, it's sort of serendipitous for me that um, I didn't really connect the dots until this week literally uh, maybe a week ago mm. that um, I'm looking at the sun myths in the Markani Purana they're they're it's staggering the material there is staggering it's there, there is a thing that I'm calling the Surya Mahatmya mm-hmm. it's a collection of myths uh, uh, and praises that that mirrors the Devi Mahatmya the more famous Mahatmya of the Markani Purana mm-hmm. and so in researching where we see glorification of Surya, I've gone down this rabbit hole of looking at the Puranas and, and various sources, and there's only one key place that, that fleshes out everything Saura, and that's the Samba Purana. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what does Samba have to do with the sun? Like, what on earth is going on? Like, why on earth would you put all of the solar uh, worship material uh, in this Purana that tells the story of the son of Krishna, this other son of Krishna. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, without going too far down that rabbit hole, I find it absolutely fascinating and fascinating more that, that Samba, the, 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 much like Pradunya, there, there are certain things that you'll find in every Samba story. He's always the son of Krishna. Mm-hmm. And this is crucial. It's the, he, the reason why he's conceived is because Krishna goes to Lord Shiva to, to he does penance for a boon so that mm-hmm. his was jealous of Rukmini's birth of Prajumna. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to Shiva and Shiva blesses him uh, with alongside uh, Shiva in the darshan is, is, is Amba, is the goddess, Samba. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Right? So he's, he's coming with the goddess. To Sa bless Amba, them. yeah. Sa Amba. Mm -hmm. With the goddess to come. And, and so therefore the child's name is Samba. So again, with this second uh, progeny of Krishna, you have a, a strong uh, gendered component. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what that has to do with. But <laughs> right. at the same time, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, look, wow, these goddess myths and these sun myths, I mean, there's, there's something that we're missing about the connection between uh, the Shakta and Saura cults of ancient India. There's, there's some connection there that, uh, you know, at one point it may have been obvious why this, this would have been the case. At this point, I'm just trying to, um, you know, follow, you know, follow the research and, and, and some mm -hmm. of it came up. Uh, just at the same time that I was looking at your book for this interview. So I thought, hey, you know, why not ask about Samba? Um, more important about Samba for our purposes is Pagina. And so what I wanted to ask you is what surprised you? Like what, what really, looking at his mythology, what, what really st struck you or, or, or stood out for you? Um, I guess what, uh, I mean, obviously the, 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 that sort of principal motif that I've identified stood out uh, to me as the most, um, uh, I, I think the most broadly significant feature of his mythology. Um, um, I guess I would say that, you know, at a more, at a narrower level, uh, or more restricted, in the more restricted context of Vaishnavism, that what struck me was the way in which those three aspects of his persona it's sort of you know again the book titles Pradyumna, lover magician and scion of the avatara so those three facets of his persona he he is kamadeva he is a mayan he is a sort of a sorcerer or someone who controls maya and he's a double of his father krishna um, those three aspects of his persona kind of chemically react with with each other over time that that was a fascinating thing um to to realize in addition to again this broader motif of, of kind of performative masculinity um the way in which the significance of these things sort of bounce off of each other or or inform each other um in in more and more consequential ways uh again the the you know as i've said this idea that that krishna has brought into the world Kamadeva as a double of himself is not something that is terribly meaningful in the context of the Harivamsha, um, but is much, far more meaningful in the context of the, the Bhagavata Purana. The idea of, of the relationship between Kama and Maya, again, those two facets of Pradyumna's persona are established in the, the Harivamsha account, but they don't really they sort of sit there side by side uh, and nothing is made of it, right? So he, he, Pradyumna has Maya, Pradyumna is Kamadeva reborn. That's all there is to it in the original account. But again, later on, um, those two features of his persona are sort of cross-fertilize cross and they become richer. Um, so that, for example, when, when um, in the Bhagavata Purana, when Mayavati makes the revelation, and says, I'm not really your mother. Um, she, she is far more cognizant of her identity as Rati and that, she, and that Pradyumna is Kamadeva. So she says, Kama, uh, sorry, uh, Pradyumna, um, reclaim your mayas. She's sort of waking him up and saying, you are Kamadeva, you know, take up your mayas such as Mohana, Mohanadi, uh, Mohana and the others. And Mohana, of course, is one of the, the names of the uh, name of one of the arrows of the five arrows of Kamadeva. So what's happening there is that, you know, uh, uh, Mayavati is explicitly mapping together this idea that you are Kamadeva and therefore you are a controller of Maya. Your arrows are forms of Maya. You delude people with your arrows. You You strike them and they become you know, enamored, blinded, incapacitated by, by desire. And there is that explicit sort of coordination of those, those facets of Maya and Kama, which earlier on didn't really, again, that, that was a very different theological context in which those two things are, are established. 
So um, that that's the other, you know, again, apart from the um, what I've called the sort of double-handed uh, virility of, of Pradyumna, the other thing that really struck me was the way in which these these elements of the mythology can um, kind of speak to each other and inform each other and become richer and richer over time. So they formed a compound of sorts. Yes. Yes, exactly. They're a whole new, they're a whole new substance uh, due to their cross uh, all nation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I, you know, I do understand what you're saying entirely about, you know, the Harivamsha being a very different lam- landscape. Mm. Bhagavata Purana. Um, and yet I can't help but wonder why on earth those narrative motifs would exist in the in Harivamsha foundational myth. Mm-hmm. Like why it it, it, it it seems too um tempting to form some kind of connection that okay, he he's a double of Krishna, he's Kama incarnate. There's you know, is there something going on there in a nascent stage? Is it just happenstance mm-hmm. that that the ingredients they put in on the counter are perfect for for for, for the subsequent <laughs> curry that's made? <laughs> right. Like what what's happening there? Because it seems rather convenient, is isn't it? Yes, that's right. And and so it's it's very difficult to avoid you know reading too much into the Harivamsha account. That is to say, you know, given the inf- the the, the given how influential the Bhagavata is on the generic sort of contemporary understanding of who Krishna is, it's often very hard to go back and read the Harivamsha in a sort of a neutral way, because we're, we're always sort of like, we may tend to um, import theological premises uh, into the reading of the Harivamsha account of Krishna's life that really are only appropriate to later sort of medieval bhakti developments. Um, but again, it's, uh, my, you know, my argument is not that the, these elements of Pradyumna's persona are kind of neutral or meaningless in the Harivamsha. They, they, they do have a, an important meaning and function in, in the Harivamsha, but that's far more tied to this concern with masculine, you know, male, uh, patriline and the strength and, and, um, uh, the persisting power of the patriline over the generations, so that the abduction and restoration of Pradyumna is itself a kind of a, you know an attack upon Krishna's Hari Hari's Vamsha, right? Krishna's Vamsha, um, and a reply to that attack, which is to destroy the you know the enemy uh, Shambara, and not to just to destroy him, but to take his woman away from him, right? To, to appropriate this, this character of Mayavati and bring her back home again, where she of course will bear male children, right? And she is, she is a functioning um, female partner who's going to strengthen Krishna's patriline uh, by bearing Prajumna male children. Um, my reading, uh, you know, of the Kamadeva identity in that context is, is, tied to this idea of um, uh, a kind of a uh, patrilineal triumphalism or a genealogical triumphalism um, that wants to tout and and valorize and trumpet the incredible virility of Krishna's son because he's, you know, he's so handsome, right? He's Kamadeva reborn. Um, He's so handsome that he can turn this mother figure into a wife figure and return you know, from his death-like state, the, the idea is that he's, he's been gone all these years and they thought that he was, you know, his Krishna's firstborn son was, was long gone and dead. But he returns in triumph uh, to establish himself again in, in Dvaraka. And of course, he has a son, Aniruddha, and Aniruddha has a son, Vajra. Um, so, um, um, again, there are any number of things that you could say about the meaning of the story in the Harivamsha. Um, and it is important, as you say, you know, you, you kind of look at those ingredients and you, it's hard to resist, um, reading those in a way that is really appropriate only to a later stage in the, in the, the development of Krishna, uh, theism. Um, I should say as well that I, you know, I haven't mentioned, I've mentioned Artie Dunn and, um, Sally, uh, Goldman and so on, but Tracy Coleman is, is another person whose work 
on Krishna in the Bhagavata was very, very helpful to me. Um, and particularly with this, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to the Bhagavata as an important later source for the Pradyumna story. And um, uh, I feel like I should mention that name as well in, in terms of the scholarship on the Bhagavata and on sexuality and, and this idea of Krishna and, uh, and Kama in the Bhagavata. Uh, her work as well is very important um, in helping to make those kinds of distinctions between you know, what's happening in the Harivamsha versus what's happening in the Bhagavata. In either case, it's, a fa- it's just an absolutely fascinating uh, myth cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on the one hand, uh, I, I'm surprised that it's not um, more commonly known. On the other hand, perhaps its scandalousness is is the very <laughs> thing is the very thing why it's not the story you tell to 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 little uh, Hindus in training or or, <laughs> or even undergrads. Um, so, and you know this this may be the only time when. Um, you know, I actually would be tempted to use Freud. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really hard not to. I mean, I, I basically, I just jump in with both both feet and I use the term eatable. Um, I know that, of course, in Hindu mythology, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, um, arguments and discussions about uh, the place of uh, Freudian categories and so on. I'm hardly, a, a, you know, a Freudian uh, a scholar who's who's examined uh, Freud in any depth myself. Um, I come at it more through this the secondary literature of people like Robert Goldman and, and others. Um, but it's really hard not to use that kind of uh, a vocabulary when you're confronted with the story of a boy who who kills his father and marries his mother. Well, well the way I'd phrase it, uh, the, the way <laughs> whether or not you or I buy into Freud, Perdue right. does. <laughs> Yes, that's yeah. So you're you're pointing to the fact that uh, Perdumna is a Freudian, <laughs> <laughs> or what would you know? Uh, what would Freud say? You know, if he got his hands on the honey bomb show, you 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 one's tempted to ask. That's fascinating. Um, what uh, will you be continuing um, studying his story, or are, have you moved on to another fascinating scandalous tale? <laughs> I, I, I feel like right now what I'm doing is sort of following up on a thread that comes out of this study. So I, I can't really say that I have entirely shifted gears to a com- completely new project. But really, at the, by the end of the book, what I try to acknowledge is, um, of course, male heroes in Sanskrit literature are... They're handsome and strong. You know, that, I mean, that everybody's handsome and strong. Everyone, everyone, every male, you know, Rama, the Buddha, uh, kings in, in, in Sanskrit dramas, that, that combination of, of physical attraction and uh, power that's exerted over other males uh, is very common. There's nothing unusual about Pradyumna. My claim is not that he, you know, he's the only person who marries these two uh, virtues. Um, but rather that that he marries them in, in a uh, in a conspicuous way um, that uh, and on a scale and with a centrality in his mythology that is not found elsewhere. But now what I'm doing is sort of following through on that idea and saying, um, okay, let let's look at these conspicuous coordinations of male uh, sexual power and and um, Violent power over other males, or really what I'm what I'm working on now for for a paper is um, an analysis of the very very many examples in which um, a male's a male figure's sexual power, his his uh, attractiveness, his beauty, or his control over feminine characters or principles, such as. Um, uh, you know, uh, control over the 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 quarters, the these the sort of feminized um, cardinal points, or um, or uh, over the earth, prithivi, or or or, or um, bhumi, and so on. One encounters all kinds of sort of sexualized um, configurations of male control, coordinated with. Um, uh, uh, forms of kind of uh, um, celebrations of a political victory, um, and again, 
you know, con uh, conquering enemy males. So this this motif of getting essentially getting the girl and uh, the girl or the woman being an actual human uh, uh, character or the, the goddess Earth or um, or learning um, uh, and so on, uh, some feminine principle coordinated with the conquest of, of a male figure, uh, which with, with political um, implications. That, that coordinated motif is something I see everywhere and I'm really trying to, to flesh out a whole sort of catalog of examples. Obviously the most famous story in the entire South Asian tradition is, is the prime example. Rama gets Sita back and kills Ravana, right? That's the number one example. But, but um, what, so what I'm pursuing now is a, uh, an attempt at a, a kind of a global um, analysis of that motif, of that doubled motif, where those two uh, types of masculine power are being coordinated in a, in a significant way. So that's, that's uh, I'm looking at Prashasti uh, inscriptions, I'm looking at Sanskrit dramas, where at the conclusion of dramas where you have a romance plot and a political plot that are resolved simultaneously. I'm looking at a lot of other Krishna mythology, such as the, you know, uh, the Varaha Avatara, the, the Bor Avatara. Um, as soon as you, you um, take up that, um, uh, that motif or recognize that motif, you, you start to see it everywhere. So I'm, I'm really trying to pursue that in a more global and comprehensive way right now. I, although I must say, uh, I think in the end that might produce a single paper or a single article. What I will do <laughs> after that, I'm, I really don't know. I imagine another thread may come from that and I'll, I'll begin to pursue that uh, thereafter. Well, there seems to be no shortage of interesting threads and in, in the tapestry of research you found yourself um, caught up in. Right, exactly. Caught up in the, the um, you know, the, to the topics pick us, you know? Yes, yes, very much. They, um, why am I writing a book on the sentiments of the Markandeya Purana? I have no idea. It, it's similar to, you know, um, what Pradumna does. It just <laughs> draws you in. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they draw you in and then you figure out when you're done, you know, what the main appeal is. It's, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, uh, whenever next uh, you have a, a book publisher, you're obviously more than welcome to come back on the program. And until then, I'm, I'm sure we'll be in touch with various um, projects and publications and whatnot. Yes. No, thank you again, Raj, for, for your work on this podcast. I, I listen to it a lot and I've, I've always enjoyed uh, the Hindu Studies podcast, the South Asia Studies podcast, uh, and a number of the other um, series on, the, uh, on that network. Um, it's it's great work that you're doing. And for those of you listening, um, that was a paid endorsement. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be sending Dalhousie University a check. Uh, <laughs> you transfer momentarily. <laughs> no, uh, you're welcome. Um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun for me, actually. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and for those of you in the audience who may be uh, wondering, I'm entirely joking. This is entirely <laughs> pro bono. This is me nerding out. Um, just because <laughs> yes. with people uh, like Christopher Austin from Dalhousie mm -hmm. University. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, until next time, those of you out there, keep reading. Thank you, Raj.